Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack. We've cracked open the vaults and pulled out the first episode we ever recorded. The long-lost and unreleased cocktail episode. Now I gotta tell you, we had no idea what we were doing when we recorded this thing. So the sound quality is not great and our focus is all over the place. But I think it's kind of fun. You can hear us touching in on a lot of things that we end up returning to again and again throughout season one. So here you go, a little fun bonus for you to enjoy during our in-between season break. I'm Joshua. I've seen Cocktail probably a dozen times. And before this, I had never listened to the soundtrack. And I'm Heather. And I have only seen Cocktail this one time. Probably will never watch (laughs) it again. And had never listened to the soundtrack from beginning to end until now. Although had heard at least a few of the songs far more times than I would have ever wished to hear them. I'm Matt and... I listened, this is one of the first cassettes I owned, and I listened to the soundtrack to death, then saw the movie at some point, blocked it all out, and then I saw it for the first time a few days ago, like 20, 30 years later, I guess. But maybe that's why I'm partial to the soundtrack, because you know those first tapes that you own? Very formative. This was like maybe one of the first three, and Don't Worry, Be Happy and Kokomo were like gateway drugs into it and i remember listening to every single song on it constantly kokomo and uh don't worry be happy could be gateway drugs to jimmy cliff the harder their fall i could see Mm. that maybe yeah but i just (laughs) i didn't have spotify (laughs) your parents weren't buying you a jimmy cliff in the next stocking money okay so it's 1988 the year the year of the dragon uh the collapse of the soviet union george bush beats dukakis uh, Rihanna's born. And uh, wait, there's something funny I thought here. Oh, yeah. The first McDonald's opens in a communist country. Any guesses on that? On uh, which country? On which yes, country? Yes, the first McDonald's opens in a communist country. Any guesses? In 1988? Yes. I'm going to say in chi- what it, China. Nope. No. I bet it's uh, the Czech Republic, which would have been then Czech It's Yugoslavia in Belgrade. Belgrade. Then it was communist for like one more year, and it was hamburgers for all. Yes, exactly. Because it's it's the end of the 80s. Oh, and the uh, Iran-Contra affair kicks off. Anyway, so that's what's going on. There's your world context, but it's also 1988, and Cocktail starring Tom Cruise, and the illustrious soundtrack comes out. Touchstone Pictures presents Tom Cruise. He's got the style. He's got the look. Bartender. And he's on his way to the top. Stick with me, son. I'll make you a star. I want you guys working for me. Just when things were going good, he got swept off his feet. I'm not like all of them. By the one thing he didn't expect. Stay here forever. Don't tell me Brian Flanagan's in love. It's more than just a one-night stand. I love you. I want to marry you. Tom Cruise. Cocktail. Rated R. Now playing it. So what's your personal context going on right now? In 1988. Yeah, because we're not paying attention to the wall falling or Iran-Contra. Right. Yeah, no, I am uh, nine, ten years old, and uh, I am, which I guess puts me in what, like third grade? I think that's third grade. grade? Yeah. I'm probably having my first, uh, like, episodes on the playground where I realize that I'm profoundly different from all (laughs) other children. (laughs) Because you carry the the cocktail soundtrack with you everywhere you go. <laughs> because they seem it's fun seems to be so easy for them to have. Oh, I like this. I didn't know we were going there yet. <laughs> Joshua, where are you in 1988? I'm I'm uh, old enough that 
I am really into to like radio music. I'm into like the stuff on the radio. I care about it. I think about it. I might be starting to turn into like trying to find stuff that's cooler than the stuff on the radio. I'm trying to remember how I felt about the songs we're going to talk about that were huge hits that I would have heard on the radio all the time. And I feel like I might not have yet turned into like a music snob because I think I was kind of in, I think I was into. <laughs> does that mean that you were? I, I think does I was that mean still that into. You it. were just uh, listening to what was being played in top forty, or does that mean that you had like an older sibling or an older cousin or a parent who was like guiding your music it consumption? Didn't really have that necessarily, but there was definitely kids at school. Like I think it was around this age that I got like the Repo Man soundtrack, which was wow. uh, oh, yeah, yeah, like punk music, and that was sort of like oh uh-huh. my god, like this. Was kind of life changing for me, but when I think about the years, I think I might have gotten the Repo Man soundtrack like the year before this or something. So like obviously it wasn't that immediately life changing because I I think uh-huh. I think that I was pretty into Kokomo. I think I liked it. Yeah, I thought Kokomo was just like I remember Touch of Grey by the Grateful Dead. It was just like old bands would do weird eighty guys singles, and then everyone would be happy with it. Well, there was a weird nostalgia thing immediately going on for like the fifties almost the 60s. Yeah, which this soundtrack is going to really hit home on, this nostalgia for the 50s and 60s, because, yeah. my God, every song like, is like... Yeah, unless it's a weird 80s song, it's like a 50s... Yeah. There's a very specific reason why the soundtrack is so focused in that era. Because it's lame? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no not see. because it's lame. Because this <laughs> because this movie is, a, is about these two men who are trying so very hard to be the last ones to be... Uh, through the gates of the American dream as opposed to being left on the outside mm. of it. Like Ooh, they're very we're going. we're going for it. They're very aware that 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 they could conceivably be left out of this this mythological promise and that they would be the first of their kind to be left out of it, right? Like they're white ethnic guys in the city who've done everything right. They've participated in all the institutions that are supposed to give them this this path forward, right? Like they've tried the military, they've tried higher yeah. education, CUNY no less, by the way. I got this cassette tape in a Christmas stocking. And I don't know if it was 88 or like bargain bin a few years later, cause it was a huge sell everywhere. And I looked at the cover and I was like, this guy is so fucking cool. And I listened to the music <laughs> and I thought all the music was so cool. And since it's Don't Worry, Be Happy and Kokomo, those are like kids songs almost. Yeah. Yet your, your parents, they sound like, like the wiggles. parent friendly enough on the radio that your parents like it. <laughs> yeah. So it was just everyone liked these songs. And I had the tape and I played it to death. And I had no idea what the movie, I just was like, bartenders are cool. Bars are cool. <laughs> I should be Tom Cruise, and this is like party music. And then I finally see the movie, and then that's a whole other thing. And you realize maybe bars aren't cool. (laughs) I don't know what this movie thinks bars are. Okay, so what the movie is about, do you want to give your takes or do you want me to read the um, back of the VHS tape, Rotten Tomatoes, of what they think this movie is actually about, which is completely wrong 
before we go into it. Oh, I mean, what they think this movie about is about is like that it's a that it's a romance, that it's a a, a rom. I, I mean, I'm guessing. What else could they say that this is about? This, this is a, a rom com about uh, a guy who who tries a few different ventures and fails, and then eventually lands the girl. I, the reason why it fails so miserably <laughs> under that rubric, though, is because the pacing is absolutely insane, and and because they like completely eschewed a three act structure. Like you actually have no idea what the central conflict of the movie is, or what the central problem is for the vast There's majority. There's kind of, the movie. of a first act. And it's about a guy who sort wants to make a million dollars and then it just goes off the rails and then goes off the rails again and then goes off another rail. And a lot happens in the last like 20 I minutes. I found it so yeah. unbelievably watchable though. Like Emily, my wife, was watching it with me and I thought she was just going to last a few minutes and she ended up watching the whole thing while she was gasping in horror and so disgusted by everything. She couldn't stop watching it till the end. And I was just like, this is so watchable and fun to watch, but... It doesn't make sense. At I all. think it is. It is a, a very fun movie. It is. I think it's it's really fun. Um, it's full of stuff. Things are happening all the time. Every scene has some little <laughs> insanity in it that is so that is wonderful. And so, like, I, I'm thoroughly entertained pretty much the whole way um, by this in lots of different ways. And like, you know what the end's going to be, but the way they get to the end is so stupid and insane. <laughs> That it makes it very watchable because you're like, like all of a sudden there's like suicide that you didn't see. The I'm pregnant part. Yes. Anyway, the, so so this movie is supposed to be Brian Flanagan, Tom Cruise wants a high paying marketing job, but needs a business degree first. It really barely has anything to do with the movie. Working as a bartender to pay for college, Flanagan is mentored by his veteran boss, Doug Coughlin, ultra creep. Together, their showy tricks and charisma command large crowds and tip payments. But then they can't do a regular recap because this movie makes no sense. So there has to be the second line that's until Flanagan and the cynical Coglin have a falling out that lasts one scene and then they're friends again. Flanagan moves to Jamaica to raise enough money to open his own bar where he falls in love with artist Jordan Mooney. I feel like that's a different movie than what the movie actually is. Yes. Because none of the narrative cues about like how long we're going to spend in any in any given moment, whether it's like building the relationship between Coughlin and uh, Cruz, or whether it's about how long it takes Cruz. I mean, Cruz cycles through a couple of women before Elizabeth Shue, but like we for a while. But he's madly in love with Gina Gershon I, yeah, exactly. for five for, minutes. For Gershon, a moment, we're we're being led to believe that Gina Gershon is going to be the the lead in this, the female lead in this movie, like because of the uh, extreme tickling sex they have when he tickle attacks her. Because Tom Cruise is obviously <laughs> a virgin some, when he films that, this. There's a lot, a lot <laughs> that, of sheets that involved. Sex in that scene sex. is a a toga party that's just moved horizontally. It's like they're they're just like wrapped up in the sheets individually, and then they like wrestle. It's later yeah. him and Elizabeth Shue wrestle in the water um, in the not before the sex scene. And he body slams her repeatedly. Right. And you can tell right. Elizabeth so, Shue, the actor, is like it's definitely a thing trying to pretend it's like funny flirting. But he's like doing it too hard and constantly. I like went back and watched it again. And he's just repeatedly body slamming her underwater because he doesn't know how to like playfully. Same with the weird tickle attack thing. Did you see what he took with them to that little romp on the beach? Not this isn't the sex part. This is when they're they're having the wrestling in the water. No. He, there's a foot there's a football sitting on the beach. <laughs> so apparently on their romantic date, he's just like, Do you like to toss the pig skin? 
Do you want me to body slam you into yeah. the water repeatedly? After the first time, and he does it like two more times. It's very uncomfortable. But she likes it because then they go have sex in a waterfall. I mean, Their I think waterfall. I think there, there's a lot of like she's like a man's man in a way. There's like a um, a thing like later when he's like, "What do you?" or when he, when he first meets her, or whatever, and he was like, "What do you want to drink?" And she says, a "Beer," like very decidedly. Like she wouldn't yeah. drink a cocktail. She wants a beer, and he even says, "Like uh, my kind my of girl, kind of yeah, my kind of woman." Yeah. yeah, and it's amazing that he's anyone's kind of man. Like that that is a leading man you're supposed to fall in love with because he's. He's kind of a real scumbag in this. Well, not just a scumbag. If you but like pull also, back all his choices, he's just like a douchebag that you can't wait to like move out of Manhattan to suburbia. Goes way between being <laughs> a real scumbag and being a real dork. A lot of his body motions, a lot of the things he does, a lot of his high fiving and his clapping and his like yeah. um, cheering himself is he's such a dork. And it's incredible that Tom Cruise was able to like convince us in that era that he was like a really cool dude. I like Tom Cruise as an actor quite a bit. I actually enjoy a lot of Tom Cruise movies, but he. He's a dork. So here's my theory. My theory is Tom Cruise is nothing but a raging charisma machine. And if you give, you get a good script and a good director, you can like contain it and guide it and put it in the right way. But if not, like in Cocktail, which is also why it's so fun to watch, it's just out of control. Like this movie revealed three things to me about Tom Cruise besides his weird sex flirting thing is he's never um, danced for fun before because when you see him trying to do it it's crazy he's never sung along to a song and he's never been drunk because he has not, being he, yes. drunk is just like he has not been drunk out of control to me he's just out of control this whole movie and I feel like it kind of makes it watchable I was thinking about like the the weird like joker mentality of Tom Cruise in this <laughs> I movie think of that. like if, it feels to me like there are, like, an awful lot of moments where his face just kind of, like, cracks open into this, like, weird smile. Mm. And then there are, the, like, these early parts of the movie when we're getting uh, what's supposed to be a very brief exposition but actually goes on an excruciatingly long time. When we get all of the interviewers who aren't willing to give him a job because he doesn't have a college degree. And, like... The, oh yeah. The cinematography of it, like the way that those people are being filmed, like they get closer and closer to the camera, they start to have this like distorted, <laughs> like big-eyed, like like frog-faced kind of thing going on and and it, it, at the beginning of the movie because you because you fuckers did not tell me when we decided to watch this movie. You had already seen it. You already knew all about it. I didn't know shit about this movie. And somehow neither one of you bothered to mention that this movie is like barely a movie. Yes, and, that's great. And it's like an incomprehensibly poorly constructed series of scenes. <laughs> Because it was based on a novel. And they fucking let the novelist write the goddamn screenplay, which yes. is always a terrible, terrible decision. But anyway, because you guys didn't warn me, in those early scenes, I thought that this was going to be like a, a very dark kind of like falling down style movie for a second. <laughs> and, I wish. And, and, and in that world, Tom Cruise's weird, like cackling, glassy-eyed, like giant pupiled situation makes a lot more sense. That girl showed me. I think I'm in love. And it's powerful stuff.
Do we need to um, do a quick rundown of the 10 songs sure. on the soundtrack so people know what we're talking about? And I'm going to tell you every time you name one, I'm going to tell you whether this song sucks or not. I, I I wonder how this is going to go. <laughs> you have a good you have a good overview of of the 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 top eighty sounds here because you have Wild Again, the Starship, Jefferson Starship, or Starship. It's just, it's it's just both, Starship, yeah. and apparently it was a bit of a hit. I think it went to like number eighty on the singles chart it's, or something. Whatever, it's definitely familiar. I'd never heard it. Then before. you got then you got powerful stuff, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Texas's own fabulous Thunderbirds, and that's that's a thing too. The like kind of neo bar stomping. 80s country thing that was going on uh since when robbie neville then don't worry be happy bobby mcferrin uh hippie hippie shake more of but georgia satellites more of the weird retro stuff kokomo well i think it's interesting that, that like hippie hippie shake like a lot of these songs are covers by more yep. modern groups but modern groups that aren't really that cool like georgia satellites are already like they might as well be from the 70s or earlier you know They're, they're the definition of soundtrack filler. And like you couldn't get the real song Hippie Hippie Shake, so you get the cheap cover, I guess. Yeah, I think a lot That's of something. these covers are not designed to like be better than or renew an old, an old song. They're just like, this is the closest we could come to our musical artistic vision as filmmakers. Yeah. Or maybe they're hoping for a hit. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not basing this on anything, but I wonder if they were thinking these are contemporary acts that have had hit songs um maybe people would be into like maybe it'll look our soundtrack look hip if on the list it says georgia satellite rather than whoever actually sings hippie hippie shake which i don't know wow that is a generous interpretation (laughs) but doesn't twist and shout trend after being in and become like a number one hit after being in ferris bueller yes but it was the beatles version yeah, it's the original version, but I feel like everyone's just after that because old songs were like charting again. Like uh, Ghost does that. I mean, that's the 90s, though. But that song becomes a number one hit on Chain Melody. It's the original, though. I'm trying to think of a cover of a band covering an old song that revives it. I know it exists. I feel like that happened a few times. Anyway, we got Kokomo at number six, Rave On by John Mellencamp, All Shook Up, Ry Cooter. Wait, can we go back oh, to... I l- can we go back to... John Cougar for a second. That song is horrible. Of, of all oh. the John Cougar that you could have had, you pick what may John Cougar, actually, it's all bad, though, Mellencamp. Look, you are obligated. I'm a Springsteen fan, so you're talking. That's right. You, you ha, you, he was the record company's answer to a Midwestern Springsteen. Wow. Come at me, Pink Houses. Let's do it. Somebody tries to who tries to get into Coughlin Coughlin's co- club, his big fancy, the the hottest saloon in town or whatever. <laughs> Somebody who tries to get in yeah. there, all this crowd outside that Tom Cruise just sneaks past with his uh, Louis Trey or whatever, um, yells out, "I'm Bruce Springsteen's cousin." I didn't pick that up. I thought that was you in that, that crowd, actually. That that I'm not. You guys, just because I'm from New Jersey, you guys think I'm the. All right, let's uh, not get okay, into it. Here we go. I'm I'm a no, no, I'm no. a middling Springsteen fan. I'm not uh, one of the, uh, okay. the the diehard Springs. Anyway, we brought it on ourselves. Speaking of the Louis I, Trey well, bottle, no, no, we didn't, Joshua. We did not. <laughs> what, what what we did Mellencamp was, it as on Matt was yes, as Matt was going down the list, I was like, not I think good. I, I think we can spend a minute of this recording talking about Mellencamp and the fact that. 
there are plenty of songs that could have had like a more like impactful, emotionally resonant capacity than the one. But do they rock a bar? Yeah. Are they are bar you rockers? Are kidding me? Name a Mellencamp song that doesn't rock a bar. It's a it's a cover of a of a of a real of a great amazing Buddy and, Holly song. And John does and not. The rock Buddy it. Holly version, no, no. The Buddy Holly version is is amazing. Beautiful. It's incredible. It's one of his like most popular songs, one of his best songs, Rave On. And John Cougar Mellencamp does uh, a, a, it's mad. It's 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 really an absurd version. It's like very accordion heavy. When I was listening to it, I looked at um, people's comments, and there are people who really, really like it. Oh and so Kevin Johnson, not the basketball player, um, <laughs> said, great voice, great song. Nobody could have sung it better and was perfect for the movie. Well, actually, Buddy Holly sang it better. It was, I mean, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then, and then I like this other guy, Paul Billy Boy, said, I love his voice. I love dancing drunk and move my hip my mama gave me. Okay. You got one hip. He yep. likes moving it. So anyway, so there's a lot of people who are very fond of the song. Well, they're all wrong. I don't understand. I actually think that this happens multiple times in the soundtrack. Like, I feel that way about the Starship song. There there are songs that could have given us that, like, unbearable, like, right. running toward your destiny kind of feeling that would match up to chasing down the Greyhound bus so much better than than the song that we get which like eventually i guess kind of has like a little bit of that can't can't deny how delightful it is kind of feeling to it but we're forced to listen to it from bar one note one and and like for the first 25 seconds of the movie at least you're just watching this kind of like destitute road with some vehicles a couple of yeah. vehicles on it, a greyhound bus and and the car that that Cruz and his army buddies are in and you're listening to this song that is terrible not really yeah it's like not really doing it for you and I, I think they even fuck that up when it comes to addicted to love because in part because Cruz keeps turning yes. off some why the is he doing that so that the so that the bar customers can like be louder yeah. or whatever <laughs> song and it is a great song is not the part where we get the endless repetition of of that lyric of like gonna have to face it you're addicted to love gonna have to face it you're addicted to love gonna have to face it you're addicted to love gonna have to face it you're addicted to love gonna have to face it you're addicted to love is what they choose to put in the movie they they, it, it happens over and over and over in this soundtrack that the 
least compelling part of the song is the is the clip that we actually get in the movie. Yes. That's what happens with Mellencamp. It's the worst Mellencamp song they could have chosen and not even the best portions of the worst Mellencamp song they could have chosen. Number there's two more left. Number 9, Oh I Love You So by Preston Smith. That one gets stuck in my head and it's nowhere to be found. It's the, oh, I love it. And I guess, I guess, I guess, you know. And then number 10 is Tutti Fruity. But to Heather's point, another way, I think, to make her point that I was thinking is every single song, movie-wise, on the soundtrack is replaceable easily with any other song. Absolutely. Like, if you're not going to use Don't Worry, Be Happy, you're going to transition Don't Worry, Be Happy when Elizabeth Shue is like, oh, where's that cute guy at the bar? And then it kind of just fades into the background. It could have just been no-name steel drum music. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's what I was thinking of. Let's let the music take us through this insane nonsense plot. So it opens with Wild Again. And you don't know what's going on. And it's a bunch of guys with a siren on a car trying to pull over a bus. And then when they succeed, you realize it's his army buddies and he was going to miss the bus. Wild Again, no one's a child again. Um, yes, okay, so it's Wild Again is by Starship. If, if I were to guess, that's the song that Tom Cruise got on the soundtrack. I think that is the most Tom Cruise song on the soundtrack, is the uh, Starship song. It's got... Wild Again. It's, yeah, it's, it's really cheesy. It's got, like, big opportunities for air guitar. Um, if you ever see Tom Cruise when he's, like, having his parties with the um, Scientologist... Uh, like those, the private videos that got leaked. Like it's the no, kind I've of music that. Those. Well, I I recommend, the, <laughs> and it's the kind of music that is playing at those events. I think that so oh, I have nothing to base wow. this on other than than a very vague opinion. Is that when I hear that song, I'm like, oh yeah, Cruz was way into this song. Well, he's getting into Scientology too at this time with Mimi Rogers. Apparently. Already? Yeah, while he's at cocktail, it's like supposedly the like the beginnings of him starting. open with that you're opening with this 80s song and then the next time you hear a song you have this like kind of cool 80s background music is his big first bartender scene because he's trying to get a job he can't get a job he wants to make a million bucks he's reading how to make it rich it's the 80s he wants a million dollars like what heather was saying and then the first big bar scene when he's trying to do it is tutti frutti by little richard So there's that like weird, wholesome 80s, 50s thing that everyone was obsessed with that you were talking about before. And that's going to continue yeah. in most of the bar scenes. In yes. fact, the only way that we can be in a bar with Tom Cruise and Coughlin is if we are all together, like singing as a chorus, <laughs> like as a as a collective, yes. <laughs> like town chorus, a song that is like profoundly an- anachronistic for the moment the movie is supposed to be taking place in. And the only way we can come together as this like collective singing troupe <laughs> is with us is with is with a fucking song that's like at least twenty years yeah. old. And it- with the one exception of Robert Palmer. 
Yeah, which isn't on the soundtrack, which we'll have to get to. Everybody loves these songs. I don't love these fucking songs. No, but you're you also not a TGI, TGI Fridays. Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> these songs are so popular. People lose their minds to these songs. And oh, can I just make one more? T- First of all, I love the TGI Friday things because I had no idea that's where they worked at first, and I could have just hung out there. One thing interesting about the TGI Fridays thing is that I have like a vague memory, not so much a memory, but I knew that TGI Fridays, it seems really stupid in the movie that it's this big, cool spot, but I I can't speak for the whole country, but I know that in Dallas, the TGI Fridays in the 80s was considered like one of the top pickup joints. And like, wow. and I heard this from like older people than myself who would say like, yeah, in like 85 or something, I'm kind of making updates here. But I know in the mid 80s, TGI Fridays was actually considered like as a really cool bar to go to. So there was something to the business plan of franchising bars in suburban areas all along. He was right. Maybe because it, his yeah. plan seems yeah, so. It was a great it, plan. Uh, if, it's if, true. If the world actually didn't have that stuff, which maybe it didn't, because he acts like it's a a fresh idea and it doesn't translate well because you're just like, you're talking about having bars and lots of places. I think we've accomplished (laughs) that. That's right. That's it. The dream is cocktails and dreams in malls. Which it's there. I wanted a history lesson. Because part of me was like, is this the first TGI Fridays before it was franchised? I don't know, but it certainly kind of gives that impression. It's for, I just looked it up, 1965 in New York. So, I don't know. That was Could on the be. Upper East Side, and I think. Then he, and then he, he ends up in Conklin's Saloon, yeah, this, which is a piece of vocabulary that is, like, an astonishing. They use it a lot. And it happens yes, more than They talk once. about saloons yeah. a lot. Like, as as though a saloon is it. a very <laughs> distinctly... Uh, it's a different kind but of But it's bar. part of Coglin's swagger. Can I just point out one Coglin line that made me laugh? When they're when he's teaching if, him if you have even one, I Well will, it makes me I laugh. It makes me laugh for <laughs> it makes me laugh for unintended reasons. There when he's first it's the the tutti frutti scene is when like all the waitresses are mad and he's not a bartender yet, you know, and it takes him like a week and then he's like spinning bottles. But Coglin's like teaching him and he says Less is more. The less you pour, the more we score. And he's like, here's how you make money. Don't give them too much alcohol. And then every time Coglin makes drinks, he's pouring three bottles upside down all over the bar, <laughs> splashing them everywhere. Have you watched how he makes drinks? It's just a complete mess. Yet his whole system and uh, practice at the bar is don't give anyone too much alcohol. Not only that, but worrying about whether you're giving the patron a short pour is something that the only bartender who does that is the bartender who's also an owner. Yeah. Like, Co- Coughlin understands so very little about capital. It's it's unbelievable. Like, it almost makes you want to root for Tom Cruise and his, like, CUNY-level business education because Coughlin, Coughlin is offering these tips about, like, don't, you know, keep the pores short. Don't, don't you know, give them a lot of ice. Yeah. He says something about dazzling. And he spins a bottle and sprays <laughs> alcohol everywhere. Like, what the fuck do you care how many ounces of bourbon you're pouring in this glass? It's not your bourbon. It's your boss's bourbon. And you, like, it doesn't, this isn't, it's actually not in your best interest as the bartender to be worried about No, you should be doing buybacks so then they pay you back in tips. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Not if you listen to Uncle Pat. 
If you listen to Uncle Pat, <laughs> a buyback is the worst thing that has ever happened in the world, and that is so such such bullshit because he's yeah. he's supposed it's supposed to be like an Irish bar, right? Flanagan, yeah. the whole thing, and the, yeah. an Irish bar in New York City in that era, buybacks are part of the design. So this is just a completely false note that this guy is supposedly so tight that he's got this regular there for. 50 years or whatever who and he's, he's like never, a dollar's a tip yeah he's never given one drink to this guy and he never will and he steals a dollar from him Which the guy's maybe, like change he's yeah. like no that's a tip and you're like how are you in business that's maybe uncle pat's only flaw though i mean in comparison to every other character he he definitely seems like the one with the most rational decision making Yes, I mean some of his advice no, in the beginning is a little. He's supposed to be the foil weird. to the get rich quick '80s, right? For sure. Yes, I guess. because he. Yes, totally. Yes, like, yes, and 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 some of his some of at the beginning some of his stuff about like you know outthink him, outwork him. At this, I'm like, okay, you own a bar. I mean, calm down a little bit here. Like, what are you, you're you're getting a different Seagrams this week? I don't know. He, he the, there's a little bit of the get. Uh, he's got a little bit of that <laughs> spiel that's like. Um, he's he, the reason his bar is successful, which by the way, it looks like the reason it's successful is because it's a place that 15 locals go to every day, like a right lot of near bars. near the Vernon it's Jackson also, stopping It's Queens. also yeah. right, it's, I was about to say, it's also right at the right. train yeah. stop. Like, he's got great locations. Yeah, but, but he's saying it's like because he, you know, outthinks everybody, outworks everybody, and, and all this stuff. Man just man like, yeah. all right, you know, I mean, it seemed a little. Well, yeah, he's got to have a little but bit then, of that But swagger. then he's, he's very anti-business because then Tom Cruise is like, hey, Uncle, what's his name? Vern or whatever. He's, Uncle Pat. Pat. Uncle Pat's Pat. Place. He's like, hey, Uncle Pat, I got someone pregnant. And then he's like, everybody out. And he closes yeah. the bar in the middle of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very dramatic. So I think you're supposed to be like, oh, that's where his heart is. He doesn't care. I don't know. I think they, apparently this they went through like so many drafts. And the book, he's an older guy. And it's an old guy. You're talking about Brian Flanagan. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Brian Flanagan, Tom Cruise is an older guy. And the book is about like down and out bartenders trying to make it in New York. And then Disney ends up putting this out. And they're like, we need a younger guy. And it has to have a happy ending. And it was originally dark. And then the during the movie, at some point in the production, the bottle flipping was added to it. That wasn't part of anything. And I think my theory is, and from remembering when I was a kid, when I finally saw it and my parents' reaction is that was the only reason the movie was popular because it's like everyone loves a juggler, I guess. And I think just the good times and the music and people flipping bottles just branded the movie. And then like the second half of the movie has nothing to do with bartending and it's just all nonsense. But I think that just made the movie good enough for the eighties. And they were like Tom Cruise spinning bottles. It's really funny and cool and awesome for the time and singing along to music. And then that's why everyone went to see it. And then everyone probably tried it at home and went to bars and bartenders joked about that and shit. It, and like, I think also it really is a movie that is stupidly organized and structured as it is. It really is touching on an anxiety that young adults in the late Reagan era really had, which was like, are we going to go full yuppie? Is that okay? Is that going to separate us from all of the things that we came from, all of the Uncle Pats of the world, all of the like things that have worked, and and like yeah. the the movie really feel like I am not a person who watches stupid movies and tries to make them feel smart. It doesn't 
it, it's not a habit. But in watching this ridiculous movie, the more like the more it went on, the more I was like, wow, actually, this movie is terrible. But it's actually like grappling with what was a real anxiety yeah. of the time, and that people were profoundly and like seriously worried about. Well, the end of the '80s, you see it because Wall Street comes out that year. You know, with Michael Douglas, that becomes the iconic movie about it. Uh, the Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox in, I think, 87. Bonfire of the Vanities is, comes out. The novel's a big hit. It becomes a terrible movie in 1990. And then there's something else I was thinking of that I was like, oh, yeah, this is another. Working Girl is probably somewhere Working around Girl. there. So by the end of the 80s, culture all shifted to, like, questioning the money thing. And then here comes the cool 90s where we pretended things weren't corporate as they got more corporate but that's a that's a different soundtrack that our episode will talk stay tuned for whatever movie that will be oh we haven't talked about cell block the crazy bar <laughs> there's with three floors and all the weird 80s people chanting poets there's the bars are that is, so that's amazing unbelievably I love unrealistic to anybody that's been fridays is normal that's the only maybe normal although i've never been in a no, bar where everybody the crowd, behaved the, like that the, but cell block no. was just like what in fantasy but i <laughs> yes. i think there's, there's like a larger thing tier. it's like a mad max thunderdome bar but like, my friend and I watched this movie a lot. He had it on video and we got so into the movie. We got really into like a lot of the side characters. And so the dudes at the bar in Jamaica were super fascinating to us because there's this group of guys who just worship Tom Cruise. And whenever Tom Cruise talks or Flanagan or <laughs> Coughlin shows up uh, to talk to Flanagan, there's these dudes who are just hanging on every word these wow, like, regulars at the bar when you go back and you look you'll see they yeah. are they're kind of older guys too. yeah right? they are so into it and i was always we were always really fascinated on these guys like who are they they, they don't talk they just like want this bartender to flirt with a rich girl they want to hear what one-liners i mean how long does a vacation last that you start to develop any kind of giving a flying fuck about know. the bartender i don't know but one of the dudes everyone they're just miserable guys that you would find at any bar in any city, yet they're doing it in Jamaica. Well, one of those no, dudes, no one of those guys played uh, not like partying or played anything. the dad on Beverly Hills 90210. And so we had built this whole... <gasps> really? We had yes. Built, yes we had built true. this whole mythology on the idea that he was like on a business trip and that this is what he was doing <laughs> when he said he was on 90210 and he's going on a business trip. He's really at the bar in Jamaica just getting hammered because there's times uh, when you see him and he's just like he's he's eaten a lot of the background because he's really hamming it up. Yes, it is the wow. dad on 90210. <laughs> oh, he was such a good dad. He really just wanted Brenda to get her shit together. Well, he moved in there from Kansas? Minnesota. Same. No, I'm joking. I guess I guess I guess you know. Well, you know what? Okay, so here's an interesting question that I think um, is actually worth maybe keeping in. Especially with this movie, there are 
13 songs or whatever there are in it, 10 that are featured on the actual soundtrack, some completely not noteworthy. I think there are some interesting things to say about the choice of songs in general, but this is a soundtrack that has, you know, Don't Worry, Be Happy and Kokomo. And when I started doing research yeah. on these, it's like, as Heather will attest when she gets into Don't Worry, Be Happy, the, you could do entire podcast on just one of those songs. E either of those yes. songs yes. could be a whole thing. So it's sort of interesting that um, makes me think that, yeah, some of these songs are going to get short shrift because they have to. But at the same time, I also don't know how much is there to say about a lot of these songs they play. They're kind of the same song. Tutti Frutti, Hippie Hippie Shake. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these songs that they play at the bars are just these filler songs that that are supposed to be machines. completely unoffensive to anyone and seem completely unrealistic. But at the same time, I don't know, maybe people really would have loved those songs at that time because those bars also looked like places I would have lasted about two seconds. So I don't well, know. I've, but you have to remember when I was reading about this, when The Big Chill came out in, I think, 1983, Motown Records was like dead in the water. And then just putting those old songs on the soundtrack apparently revived it. And they were doling out all this music. And then everyone was like, oh, we can use this music again. So this is like, you know, within five years of that. And if you look, every movie is remining. You know, now we just do that from all genres. And, you know, throughout the 90s, everyone mined the 70s, juxtaposed songs against violent scenes or whatever everyone was doing in the 90s. But I feel like that was just part of this trend. And it was cool. And like Tutti Frutti to us might have been played a million times, but I don't know how it stood in the mid mid 80s. If it was like so dated, it was fun again to listen to. I don't think. But you're right. They're, they're just all good time songs. Yeah. I think that, the, that a lot of these songs were just chosen because of how vacant they are. Like they're very. Which, which I think comes back, Matt, to what you were saying about the songs feeling to you like kid music when you, when when you were a kid and this movie came out. Like, these are songs that have no, uh, they're not asking any, these songs don't ask questions. These songs don't answer questions. These songs are the- This is the, a good point, because my next point, it goes right into this. Yeah, like these are songs that are, it's not just a matter of being inoffensive. It's that they, it's that they are utterly vapid. Like they're the most vacuous pieces of pleasurable soundscape that, that the yes. filmmakers could have chosen. And because they they literally, like the, like the big songs also have like literally nonsense lyrics, right? Mm. Like tutti yes. fucking fruity and- H Hippie hippie shake. And hippie hippie shake and Montego and Kokomo and like, these are the, these are not actually like meditations or explorations either lyrically or musically. They are just sounds that are that we yeah. would associate with like pleasure. That's it. That's and all my they next, are. And that's I was making a similar point because my next stop in my chronological jaunt through the movie was when he leaves New York and they all have a, they have a falling out and he goes to Jamaica. You get the two mega hits that were right, iconic songs of this year. And it's Kokomo. And it's just this like one minute of Kokomo. That's just it's a so transition. Short. And they can be playing any kind of stereotypical Hawaiian music. There's a little scene at the bar. And then when Elizabeth Shue comes back to the bar to talk to Tom Cruise, they've thrown don't worry, be happy. Another just background music and when you think of the use of music, 
and when you have a big song and you have rights to a big song, it's just basically like a transition and a mean like that's which goes along with your meaningless thing. Back to back, two of the biggest songs nominated for Grammys played to death platinum, and they're just like, let's get you into vacation zone with these, and we're out. Let's just hit this nail on the head with Kokomo that it is in the movie for like 20 <laughs> seconds. And it's which not is, even the yes. best part of the song. It's so crazy. And you think it's going to be yeah. such a featured part of this. And also because reading about it, well, we all know Kokomo's a massive hit. Worldwide phenomenon. Yes. Absolutely massive hit. And it's a massive hit because of this movie. They released it before the movie and it did nothing. And it's somehow this movie... People seeing this movie, they loved that 20 seconds so much yeah. that they were like, let's do it. And the whole world went crazy for it. And I don't quite understand or, why that happened or, or how that happened. Or they bought the soundtrack for, for something else, perhaps fucking Bobby McFerrin. Maybe, maybe the then, Bobby McFerrin song got them there. And in listening, they were like, oh, yeah, Montego Bay. I want to go. Which is the biggest Beach Boys hit post the Beach Boys reign and Brian Wilson not involved, not even like really in the Beach Boys at that point. But then I guess he has um, his he's, revenge when he it's comes a little, back. It's, it seems a little debated because um, what what the Beach Boys are at that point seems fairly up in the air because even whether he's on the song or why he's, he's not, not on the song. He's not listed as a songwriter. Seems, no, I know. But, well, I'll also, let's say that. Hang on. I'm going to hold off on that for a moment. <laughs> He there's debate about why he's not on the song. It's not that he's not in the band. It's that they're like, um, oh, that he's the psychiatrist wanted to be the producer. Brian Wilson's famous psychiatrist claimed he wanted to be the producer. Or th- that's the claim. His producer, his his psychiatrist wanted to be the producer, and they weren't about to pay that guy all that money just to ferry Brian Wilson to the show. Now that's really? the Mike Love side, and Mike Love is also the loser Trump supporting <laughs> creep. <laughs> who stole the name Beach Boys and now tours and doesn't include Brian Wilson in anything. So it's hard to so say. So I thought he was already doing that But at here's that time. the thing. Do you all know that there is a Spanish-language version of Kokomo? Uh, cue that up right now. That the Beach Boys sang? No. And Brian Wilson is on that. Wow. Remember when Heather said, why are we doing this podcast specifically about soundtracks? I think that's the answer for me right there. But apparently Brian Wilson, for somehow or other, is on that one, and he was not on the original. That is amazing. It makes sense that they could do a Spanish-language version of it, because so much of the lyrics is just a listing of proper nouns. Yeah, it feels very interchangeable. You, you wouldn't have a very hard time no. making all the syllables scan well, I have a que- once you changed it to Spanish. I have a question for you about one of those proper nouns. Do, you, do either of you think you could point to Kokomo on a map? Oh, no, Kokomo is a fictional place. I, what the heck is that? I didn't realize that. Oh, I did know that. Before, you do that? Oh, okay. Before that's, watching this movie, yeah, that's I so did. odd. It's fa- it's like Jamaica in the movie. But yeah. what's interesting about the list of proper <laughs> nouns is that uh, there are 
like the the pretend ones are mixed in with real ones, which which I think yeah, because Key Largo yeah, exactly, is a real and Montego one. right? Like yes, I, baby, why don't we go? <laughs> um, I think that if we were uh, Beach Boys scholars, what we would have to say about that probably is that uh, there's a kind of Xanadu thing operating there where I, where after we're like what Josh, I think Joshua is a Beach Boy scholar after what he just told us about <laughs> where, Spanish where, Kokomo where. Uh, where Kokomo is like a, a, a super fictional kind of Valhalla of uh, the sea islands. And cruises and Elizabeth Shue's love. Also that. It is some seriously fucked colonialist shit. I, I, want, <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if, uh, if uh, Mike White uh, really went hard on listening to shit like that when he was writing The White Lotus. We'll get there fast and then we'll slowly take all of their money yeah. and bleed them dry yeah it's really it's really weird it's really it's a really really weird song i was gonna say i've it heard not it so well. many times and it's so burned into my brain that it's hard for me to hear it objectively and i just know the lyrics somehow you know those songs where like well i owned the soundtrack as a kid too so i guess that's the mystery there but if i hear it on the radio i'm just like it just sounds like a time in my life it's super nostalgic and I can sing along to the whole thing. Uh, no, I, I have no positive feelings for Kokomo. Like, none. Like, I I went into the watching this movie hating Don't Worry, Be Happy with the deepest, whitest, hot, like, sun death burning. But <laughs> I talk about positive feelings. That, that, that is movie, all positive like, feelings. You know what, though? Shit's better than Kokomo. Did you see who wrote Kokomo? Yeah, Mike Love and a bunch of other Beach Boys. No. Not... It's not Mike Love and a bunch of other Beach Boys. This is pretty interesting, actually. It's Mike Love is um, it's Mike Love, and it was actually written before the Beach Boys ever got to it. John Phillips of the Oops. Mamas and Papas. John Phillips, the Mamas and the Papas singer. John dad Phillips, of Wilson Phillips, the dad of Wilson Phillips, and also the man, his daughter Mackenzie Phillips, accused of having a long. Um, intimate relationship with ever since she was like, I think 12 years old or something like that, Whoa. that they had had oh an intimate relationship. He wrote a version of Kokomo that doesn't say Aruba, Jamaica. It's just the verses basically, but you can hear it on YouTube. Um, and it's kind of yacht rocky. It's just kind of like, <laughs> it's just kind of like a really smooth song. It's not very <laughs> a catchy in that way. Like, like the version is that Mike Love did. Um, and uh, also, um, do you have the list there of who wrote it? Yeah, the Scott Who's, McKenzie. What's the, if you're going and, to San Fran, cut in the real song there. Cisco. Okay, and then the other Be one. Sure flowers in your... And what's the name of the? Sorry. What's the name of the? So we got John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Scott, we got Scott, Mike Love of the Beach Boys. We got Scott. What's his name? Scott McKenzie. Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. That's Scott the only McKenzie. Thing be sure to wear. From. So these are big, big hit makers here. And the fourth one, Terry Melcher, who's a producer of the Birds. Yes, and a big time producer who I will add is the person who Charles Manson's family is looking for when he ends up at the Tate LaBianca house. What in the actual fuck? Was there a single so, person involved in this song who is in a like sociopath? And Tom Cruise is in it. Also a sociopath. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys recorded stuff with 
with Charles Manson and Terry. No wonder Brian Wilson went crazy. Brian Wilson wasn't involved. Although the Beach Boys did a Charles Manson song, they didn't give him credit for it. Dennis Wilson kind of hung out with the dude, and Terry Melcher definitely hung out with the dude. And Terry Melcher had promised him that he was going to like listen to his songs and stuff. And I know part of this because I'm interested in Manson stuff, but I know part (laughs) of this because. Um, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I'm going to try to bring up every episode. Oh, yeah. The Tarantino hater who loves that movie. Yes, and that's who they're going. They're, they're, he's um, Charles Manson goes over there looking for him. I believe we'll probably do some Quentin Tarantino soundtracks at some point. Maybe even that one. Heather's still cringing. No, now I'm reading about this incest that Joshua euphemized as intimate relationship. <laughs> well, I mean, it was more than just... No, it Joshua. was more than just like... Him, a child and a man. Yeah, it was more complicated no, no, than that no, because <laughs> because because it actually was like a thing that they. I mean, of course it's incest and of course it's molestation, but like that's usually the story of that is usually a little bit different than this story, which was sort of like this is like enlightened hippie um, progressiveness, and it wasn't until she was much older that she realized that like oh my god this is terrible whatever. So it's 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 even more crazy than than everyone who was part of this milieu was just absolutely bonkers that is one of my takeaways for sure (laughs) at the 1988 grammys Best pop duo performance used to be a category at the Grammys. They just keep giving it to Islands in the Stream over and over. By 1988, it was I Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing. Another Dirty Dance, another soundtrack song. And then the song of the year was Linda Ronstadt and James Ingram. I don't know who that is with uh, Somewhere Out There in American Tale. Oh. So soundtracks had. Is, Is that because like pop duo like heteronormative pop duo song is like just a perfect structure for a movie song or or were they all like is it just a coincidence that all the ones you're naming were for movies i think that movies were just played a big role then movie soundtracks i'm just saying this is the power of soundtracks back then but People love these movie songs. Yeah. I definitely think it plays a role in why I'm interested in this topic is because that's a sort of a formative era of music for me. And um, the idea that soundtracks were playing such a big role in what was on the radio and songs. I want to say they played a big role in the movies because they seemed to me like they did. But I don't know. Maybe they didn't because Kokomo was in this movie for 20 seconds and somehow it was a hit. So I I don't know. I feel like when you look at Ghost or other movies... Sometimes they play the movie twice or they end with the credits. Yeah, I think Cocktail is an outlier in that it just squandered all the music and it just wanted to sound like you're partying at a bar or on vacation, which I think it achieves that as a soundtrack. But in the movie, everything felt interchangeable. It is worth noting, though, about the movie and the soundtrack is a massive hit soundtrack. Very successful soundtrack. Yeah, right. that's, that's why and, I, I got it. In my stock and similar with the movie, even though the movie won like the Raspberry for worst movie of the year, and it's been yes, like a I joke all these years, the movie made a ton of money. It was a big hit movie 
that people pretty much immediately said was terrible, but everybody went and saw it and left and said that. I mean, it was a big, successful movie, even though you would probably never know that if you saw it today because it's terrible. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. I feel like we've hyped this up and I'm not going to be able to live up to it. So anything you can tell me about Don't Worry, Be Happy is different than what I know about it. Um, So I'm interested. All right. Can I just get you revved up with one fact, get you a little mad if you're not sure if it's the build. This will bring back the build up and you'll get into it. Don't Worry, Be Happy, Displaced, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses for the number one song in September 1988. Okay, go. Let it fly. Appalling. (laughs) We're going to back up a second. What do you guys know about Tommy? The musical? Yes. The who? It's, uh, not, a, it's I, not just a musical. It is a rock opera. I saw it yes, live. Continue. I know that other than the song Pinball Wizard, I'm not that into it. And I bought the soundtrack once and I listened to it all the way through and thought, oh, man, this is not for me. Uh-huh. Okay. I, I had a who phase, saw it on Broadway and had a yellow Tommy t-shirt everywhere. <laughs> And I was like Dork. 14. Of course you And it did. said like, Tommy, 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 three times in black on yellow. So to sum up what broadly. we know, not yeah, much. Not much. Although Matt Matt knows something in his heart. I know the album. Um, <laughs> well, Tommy was Pete Townsend's attempt to like capture his interior experience after being enlightened when he discovered Meher Baba. Say that name again. Meher Baba. First name, Meher, M-E-H-E-R. Second name, Baba. Meher Baba was... Wow, I had no idea. (laughs) I know where you're going. Meher Baba was uh, born to Persian Zoroastrian parents and uh, was raised in Western India. And he died in 1969. And... He spent decades of his life in silence, communicating with an alphabet board, and had a whole collection of uh, disciples in India, and eventually also in the UK and the US. And what year is he like really thriving? He's, he's, yeah, he starts to really vibe in like the late fifties in India, but he doesn't like cross over into white people territory until he is encountered by uh, a, a one of the heiresses to the Prince Machiavelli uh, perfume fortune, okay. and <laughs> and she starts spreading the good news, and from there, like. White people in the UK and in the US uh, start to learn a little bit about him. But by the time my parents are in college in the 60s, he's he's like starting to have a, a decent following in places like, you know, Haight-Ashbury. And, and your parents are hippies? Yeah. Obviously, yeah. if they're into this dude. Okay. Yeah, they're into this dude. Um, and... But anyway, so Pete Townsend is is very into this dude, and uh, and Pete Townsend is really for a long time like trying to figure out how to bring his musical career into like alignment with his spiritual awakening. And Tommy is his first attempt to do that. Uh, anyway, Baba had these these like this. I mean 
like all religions, uh, Baba is like an MLM basically, right? So he has to have the the like posters and the claptrap and the like swag and the books and the shit. What's an MLM? Multi-level marketing. Oh my god. <laughs> right? Like like it's a pyramid scheme like all all religion is. So Well, except except multi-level marketing is legal. Pyramid <laughs> schemes are not. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Which I know I watched I watched a documentary just like a couple days ago about this. You did? Yeah. You watched it? <laughs> not about what you're talking about, about a about No, a but about scheme. LuLaRoe. Y- yes, I did. I watched yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to watching it. <laughs> anyway, so this is Baba. This is his deal. He's all about maintaining silence, and he's got and like his his like his cosmology is actually like kind of interestingly inflected by having been raised Zoroastrian in like a predominantly Hindu community, um, and he's got these he's got like all of these influences. But like what it boils down to basically is like some reincarnation. Some, like, everyone is working toward God realization and the, like, highest levels of self-actualization of the soul. And it will take you countless lifetimes to achieve that. And religion... Which is the plot of cocktail. Yeah, and and religion is uh, a, a poor substitute for actual, like, spirituality. Pete Townsend buys into it. He's got all of the paraphernalia... Bobby McFerrin is in Pete Townsend's house and encounters Baba through Pete. And Pete gives Bobby McFerrin, we we think, like, this, this, the, like, the, like his, history on this is a little shady, but we think that he, like, kind of brings Bobby into the fold. And one of the first things that Bobby learns is, like, the motto of Meher Baba, which is, don't worry. <laughs> boom. Boom. <laughs> And the rest is history. Yeah. And Bobby McFerrin goes home and writes this song and will later say that uh, he thinks that the popularity of the song comes from the fact that it's just such a simple, easy to understand idea that everybody really wants to be true. My parents stuck with this nonsense the whole time. <laughs> dude, dude died in 1969. I'm born in 1979. My parents are still into it. My parents are still like taking pilgrimages. They're still into it? Oh yeah, they're still taking pilgr- pilgrimages today. They, they retired to the place where they retired because it is geographically close to Baba's home in the West. His, his like, wow. his like compound in South Carolina. I have a big question. <laughs> Do they worry, and are they happy? This, this is a perfect question, actually, Lombardi, because <laughs> because I I think that part of the reason why don't worry, be happy is like so salient for my parents' generation and like the particular demographic that they represent within that generation is that like they couldn't. St- they couldn't stop worrying if if it were the last like if, if their lives if their children's lives depended on it they were going to worry no matter what they were going to worry that they had like gotten too far away from their roots they were going they're going to have all the same worries that the that cocktail is like meditating on like do we go for the bucks like what happens to you when you go for the bucks do we go for the love what happens to you when you lean into the love like is it enough is it good enough is it you can you have it all i can't wait to do big chill with you (laughs) can you get can you get the girl and the bucks 
and have like released yourself from the tyranny of capitalism like these are the things that were going to be consuming my parents no matter what and consequently they were never going to be happy that was like a non-option so having this as like the as the as the goal was like they love it they love this idea but no of course they worry and of course they aren't happy because when your worry your face will frown and that will bring everybody down so don't worry. what about the song itself uh, that's a cool history i yeah. didn't know all that but also but like i can song. tell yeah. you the last time i actually listened to don't worry we have like put it on headphones yeah. listen to it hit play i've probably heard it in places I've probably heard it on commercials or something, but I couldn't yep. tell you. And I'll say that as soon as it started, I was like, this is pretty good, man. It's like a, well, he, it's like so in the pocket. I think it goes on too long because I think they have to stretch <laughs> it out for radio and they start throwing in all these like sound effects and they're, yeah, you know, whatever, yelling and stuff later on. But like for the first like minute or so, I'm like, the levels are good. Like it sounds like people are actually in a room doing something i don't know i well, i was he, kind i know of, he does every i was pretty into the group i gotta tell you joshua i would never have listened to that song for the rest of my days if you hadn't made me watch this fucking movie <laughs> and and when i was watching and I, when i was oh, yeah no you you're right yeah you know i i thank you because listening to that song she's gonna follow <laughs> baba now again no, no i was like this is a stupid song in the sense that like it's a, yet again like i i think all the songs on this soundtrack are utterly vacuous and this one is also utterly vacuous but it's kind of an enjoyable song that's that's what i thought it's it's like it's kind of fun to listen to i can't imagine that i'd ever be like oh you know what i i'm going to fold some laundry and kind of bop around to don't worry be happy that's not going to happen but it's kind of it's kind of a good song it fulfills its intentions yeah. right yeah, if the yeah. song is called don't worry be happy yeah. and then he whistles in it it's it's a great whistling track with all the if you made like a top has anyone ever done like a top 10 whistling songs that's got to be up up there right it would <laughs> yes it would be very high i also like in later later in the it's song a whistling solo it's great later in the song he says now there's a little song i wrote i hope you learned it note from note so it goes like past tense like hey this thing that you we were doing together we've now done it and and i hope that you're gonna take this with you and i sort of liked that i was like oh that's that's nice forget baba i feel like we're becoming mcferrin devotees i mean it's now. better than i'm gonna than being part of like the beach boys manson incest scene <laughs> yeah i think the best thing i can say about cocktail is that it gave me a new appreciation for don't worry be happy which turns out to be a pretty legitimately enjoyable, humane song. Wow. I, Heather, I like I it. I love this. I love that you found... There's something for everyone in Cocktail, I guess. <laughs> There's a scene in Jamaica where they go to a dance club. Oh, this is the best song in the movie. That, that Jamaica club that they go to where Kelly, the band starts playing and Kelly Lynch yells out, I've never seen a club with such intense dance vibes. <laughs> it's a great line to yell out when a band starts playing. And But I don't know who that band was, but I, the, I thought they were pretty good. Like, like That's the best song. Their look it's the guy with and the what sparkly were, suit. What, yeah, the, the look of them and the, the, the music. I was like, this is like the one, like, I've 
This is like kind of a jam in this song. I don't know. Maybe they're lame, but but the, in that no, in that great. movie they looked cool. Oh, in that movie they stand out as like absolutely. Oh, we're here and we're they're, in yeah. it. They're doing a reggae version of this magic moment. Yep. Okay, and it sounds fucking awesome. And then you think. This whole album just should have been reggae versions of all these, like a reggae version of Tutti Frutti. It would have been so much cooler or interesting to listen to. And you just keep Don't Worry, Be Happy, and Kokomo. I think that Heather's made some good points about the some of the politics of the era and why this movie reads somewhat interesting. And Matt, you compared it to Wall Street. I think there's some good stuff there. But there's one part about it that I don't want... The, I don't want it to be able to get away with this. And there is a the anti-academy, anti-intellectual, anti-art thread in that movie is so <laughs> garbage, right. right-wing, 80s nonsense and i remember because i remember when that was a a dominant force i mean it still is but i remember the root of it and this idea that like look at how stupid modern art is it's it's you know the jokes about it he knocks over two different sculptures in the movie two different times he punches a guy who then knocks over a sculpture the second one is clearly made of like styrofoam that they just laid on itself because when it falls over it just falls into pieces it wasn't even connected and all of the 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 college scenes are just like are what are you are you kidding me that that the guy from the Jeffersons who's the teacher yes. who just <laughs> screams at everybody and tells them how stupid they are and then he says you couldn't cut in the world and the guy throws his paper right. in the air and then and then he goes now you get an F <laughs> and then they cut back to the bar where they talk about you know what none of that stuff matters in the streets. And real life is happening here and all this crap. And then in the end, you know, it's real life is, is you know, this quiet life you're going to spend in Queens or wherever you ended up building this suburban thing. And, and she lives her billionaire. Why would she ever do that for Tom Cruise in a shitty bar? It was a very powerful thing that was happening at that time. And I think it's garbage. And I think it had a lot of power. And I think the movie was totally feeding off that. And the way that it's sort of celebrating like a lot of um, country songs do, the particularly bad ones, there's like this sentimentality about uh, uh, the street, quote unquote, that is actually not the street. And it's like actually not real poverty. Wait, are you telling me Coglin's laws well, are not true? Coglin's laws Joshua, are a little right? bit different than what I'm talking about. But the way that like Tom Cruise is acting like being a really successful bartender who makes a lot of money is reality that the rest of the world is dealing with and the academy and the arts and all these things are just this bullshit um, was just like, just Joshua, nonsense. I think you're, you're really, you're really onto something there. It's, and, and you're absolutely right that it does have this, this kind of derisive approach to, to like education for starters. Oh my right? God. The it's, co- it's, it's, college it's, is the got- worst place in the world. Right, it's got this, uh, it's got this like school of hard knocks kind of deification of of like what happens when you when you give up on on your book your book learning and you just go out there and do it right, um, and I think you're absolutely right about the 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 like visual art the sculpture too, but one thing that is a counterexample is how beloved. 
poetry is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I, it's that is the most but excited the anybody's bar, ever been for an open mic though. when the bar when the <laughs> the yuppie poet speaks. Never has okay, a room we'll full of people loved an open mic more than that moment. We got a sample of the poems here. America drinking the fabulous cocktails I make. America's getting stinking on something I stir or shake. The sex on the beach. The schnapps made from peach. The velvet hammer. The Alabama slammer. I make things. What did you learn from the soundtrack and its companion movie? Joshua, do you want to go first again? Uh, I think when I was connecting all those dots on who wrote Kokomo and the ways that I'm familiar with those people and the tidbits of information that I have about them and that somehow Manson and the Mamas and the Papas and, uh, you know, all of these different weird connections somehow ended up uh, revealing themselves led me to think that um, part of what I learned is that I'm interested in incest it's horrible (laughs) Um, intimate relationships no the um i don't know i I think i'm interested in going down the rabbit hole on some of these things i guess that's what it is like there's there's a little bit of of the historical aspect of some of it and the weird way that things come together um that i don't really know and and that part's a bit interesting to me so that's what i learned is that i that i think i'm interested in the stories behind some of these things um I expect that most of them will be boring and not that interesting because they'll just be like, hey, I sat down and I wrote a song. Um, but I think that some of them, you know, the the stories to Don't Worry, Be Happy and the story to the Kokomo, Kokomo are both pretty interesting. Yeah, I think I learned that one of the things that I'm looking looking for in, in this little quest is movies where the soundtrack is complicating the film instead of just like set decorating the film i think that if 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 like the next time around or soon enough like i'm looking forward to a soundtrack that is is like a counter note and producing attention to the movie whereas this one whereas this one is like really just kind of wallpaper Yes, that's a great. You can do fifty different soundtracks with it; would still work. Yep. For this movie. Yep. Which is why any of those soundtracks would be better than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that on the surface, just the subject itself, cocktail is actually not a movie about bartending at all, because it kind of just leaves bartending in the dust at one point, and it's attempting to grapple with this late '80s capitalism, um, and the meaning of that, and America which it fails miserably at, but in doing that and knowing that and watching it and watching it through like a lens 30 years later, it gave me such context for the time. And I just started connecting this to like wall street, which comes out. Michael Douglas wins the Oscar for that. Um, so that was a huge movie and became iconic connecting it to Tom Wolfe doing the master of the universe thing and bonfire, the vanities and just, connecting it through music movies and then getting a feel for like, Oh, when I was nine and into candy and just maybe getting into music and, you know, like kind of understanding what the mainstream consciousness was, which I never thought cocktail would do that for me. 
Thanks for listening. If you made it this far, you're either a big-time cocktail fan or I guess you enjoyed traveling with us back to our origin story. Uh, It's kind of fun for me to listen back and hear the things we were uncertain about, what we were doing or why we were doing it. But also, you know, all the things that uh, ended up coming up again and again in season one of the perfect movie soundtrack. We are excited about season two. And as we get going with planning on that, of course, we'd love to hear from you if you have any recommendations or requests. I'm hoping to have some extra things for you uh, throughout this break between our seasons. Um, Not really sure. Not sure what they'll be. Not sure what my time will allow for. So we'll see. And in the meantime, thanks again. For Heather and Matt, this is Joshua saying so long once again to another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack.